0: Welcome to The John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This
1: podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey, Rocky Lalvani, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. How are you?
0: I'm wonderful, and thank you so much for having me today, John.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Uh, Rocky is a financial coach at Richer Soul, and I'm excited for you to be able to share with our listeners a little bit about your just personal experience and uh, growing up chasing after the so-called American dream, chasing after money, and what that ultimately led to. And then a little bit about how you can coach people uh, on their own, you know, development through their career and through their wealth building. But before we get into that, Rocky, would you mind sharing for us where you grew up and what was money like in your household growing up?
0: So I grew up in uh, Jersey and just outside of uh, New York City. And I pretty much spent most of my life there until... um, my mid-20s. We're immigrants to the United States. So I came when I was two and we we lived in all different parts of New Jersey. We started off in the not so nice parts of New Jersey and you know, not so nice neighborhoods and so forth because when they came to the United States, they weren't allowed to bring a lot of money with them. So they kind of had to start at the bottom. They came here to build the American dream and they had already had success in the home country, but they wanted more. And so my parents moved here. They both had relatives here. And then a lot of their friends at that same time had also moved to the United States. So they were also in the surrounding areas. And so our family, we didn't have direct family, mostly locals. We had a lot of friends of family. So these are people that my parents went to college with or grew up with who had also moved here. And so they would always be having conversations around money and figuring out what was the American dream and how do you achieve success in the United States? How do you fill in culturally and how does that all kind of work out? They Mm -hmm. were very much of the attitude that when in Rome do what the (laughs) Romans do. So I grew up just learning English. They're like, you're coming here to live this thing. So you have to assimilate Mm -hmm. into that culture and take on the norms for that type of society.
1: Yeah, I'm curious there what it what it what it's like, you know, at that young age to grow up uh, as a as an Indian immigrant family uh, on the east coast. What were some of the uh, implications of that as you were growing up?
0: So, I think the biggest thing is this was the the late 60s early 70s and I think in that time in America everything was black or white. So you were either everyone wanted to put you into are you black or are you white? I'm like, well, we're neither. We don't fit into those boxes. So I think that was a little bit of a struggle. But because we had, we didn't have a big community, but we had a small community, but they were a successful community. Mm. So I think we didn't grow up ever having to feel bad about being an immigrant or it wasn't it wasn't looked at as a negative type of thing. No one ever said, oh, we're immigrants, we can't succeed or we can't be successful. It was just, hey, You're going to be successful. That's the expectation. You're going to go do great things. What great things are you going to do? So there was always success that was the underlying principles there. And the families always had conversations around money as well.
1: Yeah, and it seems like you know, for for let's say um, for so many people that I talk to, uh, you know, the, m- money can be a taboo subject. So it's 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 oftentimes we, we hear that it's completely avoided. You know, they you know, folks have never chatted with their parents about money growing up. They never heard about it. They never sort of saw their parents fight about it. And it was just like this thing in the background. But that seems as if that's uh, a, it was different in, in your childhood and growing up. Like maybe the conversations were more out in the open. and and you got to you know kind of hear through osmosis through your parents so did you ever see them you know I guess imagine I imagine they struggled at the beginning but what were some of those conversations that you could overhear from your parents or even your friends
0: so I think the conversations where people were asking about how much people paid for certain things so you know they're like how much did you pay for your house how much did you pay for your car what kind of income do you have um they would have those kinds of conversations. And so I thought that that was just normal. You'd always hear how much money somebody else was making or how successful they were doing at whatever it was they were doing. Or if they got into real estate, you'd hear about how much they bought that real estate for or what the situation was there. So I think the money conversations just naturally occurred and we would always hear them. So it it just wasn't a taboo subject at all.
1: Hmm, That's super interesting. So talk to us a little bit about your young adulthood and how you sprung out, you know, let's say after school and you started in your early career. What were some of the activities or jobs that you were involved in?
0: So I came out of college and I, I always had a simple goal that I wanted to be a millionaire. I started investing in stocks and I started saving literally my first job out of college. So my first job was with Pitney Bowes And I was in sales. I didn't have the greatest track record in college because I just didn't care. I was like, they're teaching me boring stuff. It's, you know, it's kind of silly. So you get out, you start working, right? And I started making good money relatively quickly. But what I did was I automated all of my savings. So I was putting money into company stock, 401k, credit union. My dad had a uh, a brokerage account with me uh, for me at T. Rowe Price, which he turned over to me when I became an adult. Hmm. It didn't have much money in it, but they had an automated savings program where you could, uh, every month they would sweep money out of your checking account and buy mutual funds for you. And so I had all of these different things just automatically set up so that I could build my Portfolio Now, that doesn't mean I was smart. I made a lot of stupid mistakes back then. I was always chasing returns, mm. right? So oh, look, that that mutual funds up fifty percent. I buy that one. Well, of course, I'm buying at the top. oh boy, and it crashes.
1: so then yep. I'm selling at the
0: bottom. I was trying to figure Rinse out... Rinse and
1: repeat until
0: broke, right? <laughs> Rinse and repeat until broke. I would read the Wall Street Journal. I'd try to figure out how to buy stocks. And I joined a stock club. It was actually um, my friend's parents had a stock club. And um, so we would talk about stocks and we we try and figure out how to buy them. But I I just made a ton of mistakes. You know, I... Mm. I'd buy things at the wrong time or for the wrong reasons. I didn't have a good investment process. Hmm. And so the, what saved me is the fact that I was constantly saving. Yeah. And I wasn't making really bad mistakes, but I was making a lot of little mistakes along the way.
1: So one of the things that makes me think about maybe from a parent perspective and from your parents, you said that, you know, your dad had set you up with a T-Roll price account. And I, uh, sometimes from what I hear from clients is, uh, you know, a concern that if parents give their kids access to a brokerage account at 18 or 22, whenever that is, that they're going to, you know, squander the money, or maybe they're going to be so hyper obsessed, you know, obsessed that their values may shift and change over time. So I don't know, how, how did you, First, living that you know firsthand when you received the keys to that T Rowe Price account, what were some of the ways and kind of the emotions that that made you feel looking at those dollars?
0: I don't think there was a lot of emotion because it wasn't a ton of money. I mean, I there might have been at most a thousand or two thousand maybe dollars okay. in there, mm. so it wasn't like it was a ton of money. And I was naturally a, i I'm naturally st- thrifty. yeah. So I negotiate everything. I save money. Yeah. Um, I got out of college with no debt and I figured out how to pay for college while I was going through college. So I was always making money and I was never big. I did spend money at times, but I wasn't one of these people who wanted to just kind of go crazy. It was no. a different time than today, I think. I think today it, it's it's changed a little with expectations for kids and how it is. But at the same point, I think if you expect your kids to be able to handle wealth, you have to teach them how to do that when they're young. And mm-hmm. you teach them by giving them money
1: and letting them make choices. Yeah. there's an. I mean, they have to experience that firsthand and there's some actual risk in actually withholding that and then not giving them the ability to fail and iterate Kind early on in life, I guess, right? Absolutely. You have
0: to give them the chance to fail.
1: <laughs> so then talk to us about, um, you know, as your career, career progressed, you and I had chatted about, you know, you were at some point just became, you know, fairly hungry and were chasing after dollar signs, but they seemed to mean less and less as, the, you know, the more you accumulated. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, as you progressed on through your career and uh, as you are buying big things, you know, how did that make you feel at that time? And what were some of the things that you learned as a family?
0: Well, I think we we chased the American dream and we wanted the nice big house, right? And the fancy cars and all of the trappings that come along with that because that's what we thought the American dream was and that was what was gonna make us happy. We were good in that we were buying big, but we were also saving. So we weren't too far out of balance in that sense, but we did we did chase up the ladder and it was probably not until well, maybe my early 40s. I'd have to think how old the kids are. And yeah, it was probably into my, yeah, because we bought the big house that we live in now when I was 35. So we had the successful things, but then probably another seven, eight, 10 years after that, you started to realize, hey, I have all these things and I bought all these things and I furnished the house and I did all of this. But yet all of those things create obligations you got to mow the lawn you got to clean the stuff you have to all of it takes work and you amass so much that it's almost overbearing and there's all this clutter and it's like enough is enough and I think we could have taken the next level and bought the even next size bigger house and done all of that kind of stuff and I was like no I was like, cause I, I think part of it was, I thought through, like, if I buy the next house now in five or six years, the kids will be gone. Like then I've got to downsize then I'm spending on this. It just, it seemed to be mm. too much of a, a hamster wheel. yeah. And so I decided to kind of take the foot off the gas. And we actually started to pay people to come in and clean out our house
1: and make it less cluttered and start really? to get
0: rid of stuff.
1: Yeah, uh-huh, that's well, yeah. And you bring up an interesting word obligated. And uh, I guess that's not something that I often associate with the bigger and better. You know, if I want I want the nice Mercedes and I want the big house um, and, and you know, I'm thinking that that would be fun and feeling a sense of rewarding. But I'd never really considered that maybe this feels like an obligation somehow to, to pull out the nice uh, China wear or, you know, uh, you know, consistently kind of labor over all of these items, so you know obli- uh, the obligation of that feels taxing
0: well, if you think about it, if you have a nice lawn, then you 've got to mow the lawn or pay somebody to mow the lawn you 've got to pay someone to weed all the flower beds if you 've got fine china, you have to hand wash it you can 't put it in the dishwasher, right? You have to polish the silverware. If you have a mercedes it's five hundred dollars for an oil change i mean it's <laughs> everything becomes a problem. And then where are you going to park the car? You know, you, you start worrying about dents and dings and in all of these types of things. And it, 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 it just, you don't realize how much it starts to weigh down on you. And then even though you have these things, somebody else buys bigger, better. And now you start to say, I need bigger, better. and, and, and You get on that whole hamster wheel and it, yeah. it just got to be crazy. And I, what I wanted more so was just freedom, time, yeah. freedom and financial freedom, that I didn't have to do something.
1: Yeah, so it seems like there is a logical transition. As you experienced the sense of obligation, you considered leveling up even one more time, but then opted not to. So talk to me about how how did you start to go through the process of defining for yourself what it means to have a richer soul and what some of those transformative processes were or thoughts were?
0: So that kind of, that started probably, I would say, about seven years ago. It was like, what do I want to do next in life? What's important to me? How do you really find happiness? And so I literally had a big white piece of paper and I started to write down like, what is important and what are the things that I want to fix? Part of that was my health. I was overweight and I've lost um, about 40, 50 pounds since then. And I've kept Mm. it off for years. Mm. So how do you, how do you look after yourself? What brings you excitement? You know, work was work and I kind of four hour work weeked it. you know, the Tim Ferriss way. Right. So I had time freedom and I was raising my kids and I had a ton of time to be with my kids. So that was really cool. And then it was like, what really makes you happy and what's important? And so as you start to define those things for you, in other words, I was chasing someone else's definition. Now I was creating my own definition.
1: Talk to me a little bit about that too, because you've referenced that before of living out somebody else's definition. And there's a lot of voices out there, so it's easy to actually lose sight of our own definition, even if we think that's our definition. But uh, you know, that's probably something you've experienced too in your coaching business. So, how does someone know whether or not they're living out their own definition versus somebody else's in terms of what success is?
0: Well, you know what? The first thing is when you wake up in the morning, and it's Monday are you excited? Like, are you thrilled that you're doing what you want to? I, I have spent most of my life at, you know, even though I was chasing things nowadays, I weekends and work days, there's no kind of difference. So that's your first simplest test. The second thing is I, I think a lot of people just realize they go chasing something and one day they just wake up and they're like, this is not what I imagined. Mm. And more often than not, I think your parents, your teachers, or somebody puts you on a path. Oh, you're so smart with math. You should be an engineer. You know you know how to argue. You should be a lawyer. Or everyone in our family is doctors, so you need to be a doctor. Or, hey, there's money in, in computer programming, so go be a computer programmer. Might not be what you loved, but you chased the money or you did what you were told to do for what success in life was supposed to be. And I think a lot of people one day, they know that things aren't right, but they don't have, they're, they're so busy running on the hamster wheel. They don't have time to think. They don't have time to even question. Is this, is this right? Is it wrong? Is this, why am I here? And how, you know, Yeah, you're always looking for the bigger promotion, but not the bigger life.
1: So tell me then that makes me think back to then just some like from a parenting angle. So then as you experienced that firsthand and now that, you know, as you're thinking about your children and how, how do you best encourage them uh, and encourage them, you know, you want to, if they're good at, you know, arguing and they want to become a lawyer, maybe that's something that you see and you want to be able to tell them because they don't know the, a career about being in law, you know, so you, you want to, you know, foster the strengths, but at the same time not force them into anything. So do you have any thoughts or from a parenting angle about being able to let somebody know the available options for career paths, but not, be too forceful?
0: So, yeah, I think both of my kids are somewhat unsure. My daughter's in college. I know what her skill sets are, and I'm working on building skill sets that will allow her to be successful. So, it's not what you're learning in a classroom. It's the soft skills you're learning outside the classroom. So, she's learning all the different skills. She doesn't know what she wants to be, and I'm okay with that because I don't think there's going to be a definition for her. She knows what she doesn't want to do, and she doesn't want to work in corporate America. She doesn't want to work in a big company where you come in and you, you know, you're fit into a particular role, and that's what you do all day. That's not her dream. So it's just exposing them to opportunities, letting them meet people in those perspective fields, letting them get a chance to talk to people and see what is the reality of X. My son's more of an engineering kid, so he... Honestly, at the end of the day, go get your engineering degree. Who cares? It's more, you know, you'll go do what you want. You at least have the base piece of paper, but it's not locking you into a
1: particular field. That makes sense.
0: Have the flexibility to go do something else. So we
1: don't tell them they have to be X. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. You know, that makes me think about how, um, a, a story that I encountered with a, with a client that I had worked with where they had encouraged their graduating senior from college to uh, ask all of their friend groups about what their parents did and set up small little coffee dates with six or seven different parents. And it was just a good way to see their personality types, see what kind of jobs they were involved in and kind of get a, a real world exposure to different uh, opportunities opportunities, you know? So I think that's, a, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Rocky. But.
0: So that's kind of late. You're saying a graduating senior, that's yeah. way too late in the game. I think you have mm. to play the game earlier. My daughter's a sophomore yeah. in college. I'm like, nice. get your LinkedIn profile up now. Nice. Okay. Right. Yeah. Start reaching out to people. Just even if you can do one a week, set up a coffee meeting for the sole purpose of, of learning that person's journey and story. What do you do? How did you become successful? What are the things that you would do differently going forward? And just start building relationships so that when you're a high school, you're coming out of um, college as a senior, imagine if you already had a network of 150 highly successful people that you could go, hey, I'm graduating, and 20 of them going, hey, we've got a job for you.
1: <laughs> so that's well, what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder too if that would, if you feel as if that would still apply for people that are midway through their career. Cause I, I imagine for the people that are listening, they don't have kids in college. I mean, certainly my kids are really young and that's a, a long ways off. So do you feel as if that same thing would apply if someone's feeling stuck in their corporate career, having those type of conversations are still relevant for them?
0: Absolutely. So that is, it's a natural networking technique where literally every week you should be reaching out to somebody, whether it's high levels of the company you're working in or high levels of people in other industries or other companies. And you're not looking for the, you're not looking to connect with somebody who's a job ahead of you. You're looking to connect with somebody five, 10 levels ahead of you. Mm, And it's, it's just literally to say, Hey, I'm here. I'm looking for my career progression, 10 years down the road, I want to be somewhere else. I'd love to just hear your story. How were you able to do this? How were you able to achieve your success? Most successful people will talk to you because success breeds success and they're looking for successful people. So if someone's connecting with them on a LinkedIn or through an email or through something saying, Hey, I'd like to meet with you. I'm, I'm here and I'm looking to get there and I would just love to hear your story. Mm. People are willing to do that. It's probably getting harder now with so much spam crap coming in. Sure. Um, but making those connections and talking to people well ahead of when you need them is so, so, so powerful.
1: I'm glad you laid it out in that way, and that's a helpful uh, template, I guess, for those that are interested in doing it. Um, Being able to, you know, reach out and just clearly state, you know, I admire what you're doing, and I'm, you know, if you're five or ten steps ahead, I, I, I'd like to hear, you know, what you did right, what you did wrong, or things like that. So I think that's a really important reminder and a call to action for folks. So uh, I guess Rocky, tell us a little bit more about your your time spent as a financial coach, or what coaching might look like for you. What what types of uh, groups or individuals have you worked with, and what are the aspects that you're, you know, talking to them about? So I tend to work
0: with high net worth people. So they're people who've already figured out how to make money, and they've been saving their money. And I think a lot of them are stuck in the same situation I was. They're like, okay, we got all this money, we did all this stuff, but we're not thrilled with life. Hmm. And the first underlying principle that I think that we try to work with is what's your purpose? What do you want in life? So what does your life, what does your perfect life look like? How does that fit in? What do you look like health-wise? What do you look like relationship-wise? What kind of relationship do you want to have with your kids? What do you really want to do for work? Is what you're doing appropriate or is there something you'd rather be doing? Um, So looking at all those things, how are you managing your time? you know mm-hmm. do you have the freedom to do the things that you want or are you just running the grind all the time so i think up front it's it's figuring out first and foremost what do you want out of life number 2 it's the mindsets do you have an abundance mindset do you have a growth mindset are you constantly mm-hmm. learning and improving And doing things better and better. Are you making yourself better every day? Because the world is moving fast. If you're standing still, you're going behind. So it's it's creating those types of things. The biggest thing I see with coaching is a lot of people have right in front of them so many opportunities, but Hmm. they just can't see them. And part of what I do is help people see the opportunities right in front of them. Hmm. And. Small next steps that they can take almost immediately to do something. So, like the LinkedIn networking, that everyone can do that, right? It's a small step you can start today. It At seems the bottom, like it's though, hard, it's hard to
1: take action on things like that because you know it's it's one thing to have lots of opportunities and then to realize that they're there and then it's a whole nother thing to actually take action. It's almost as if it's like, well, which path do I go down or which avenue do I do? It's uh, sometimes having all of those choices or all of those opportunities creates another problem, you know, on top of just knowing what what the next step is. So, I mean, what's some uh, options or suggestions for people to just go from zero to one when they're looking at all the opportunities ahead of them?
0: So, you know what, I think first of all is what was, what's the end game, right? So it's defining where you want to go and then which next step takes you in the direction of your end game. Cool. And I think that's, when you have clarity on Everything else becomes easy. You don't have to worry. Do I do this or that? You know, which which next step is going to take you closer to where you want to be Most people don't have clarity and that's the big thing and then the other thing we do is I am a financial coach So we make sure all the numbers are in order We make sure that all your savings are being done appropriately and you know What your freedom number is and how much you need to walk away and how you can make choices in the meantime
1: yeah, I love that. Well, you bring up something which reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's, it gets attributed to Roy Disney. But uh, it's when the values are clear, the decisions are easy. When the values mm-hmm. are clear, the decisions are easy. It's really similar to Stephen Covey's, like start with the end in mind. But you know, it just continues to be those those statements. Maybe we hear them so often that we even kind of like forget or brush them off. But they're they're <laughs> they're they're true for a reason, and uh, they linger. in, you know as, as important quotes for a reason because they're so helpful. So I think that's cool.
0: And I use two techniques for that. Um, it's whatever you prefer. One, write your eulogy. Hmm. Or two, go out and buy a lottery ticket. Just one, right? And it, it's a physical thing. Okay, you've got your lottery ticket. You just got $100 million. How are you going to live life? And I think the thing with that though is to take the time, get beyond the fancy car and the fancy house yeah. and say what are you going to do with your day how are you going to live your life what is an optimal day look like now that you're
1: wealthy and you have total freedom so either of those two things can kind of help you do that i think that's a good practice and exercise and i've heard in the financial planning world um, uh, a man named george kinder has the you know the famous kinder three questions i'll probably butcher these but there there's something to the extent of you know if you had all of the money In that you could ever desire, you know, the $100 million lottery ticket, what would be different about your life? That's number one. And then, you know, you've you've got terminal cancer and you know you're going to pass away, but you don't know when. Uh, What are the activities or things that need to be done? And then the last thing is you've got three weeks left to live and you know for certain in three weeks, that's it. What happens within now in that next three weeks? And they're kind of similar to what you're talking about. It's just forcing an exercise to really think beyond yourself and your situation and maybe that helps to uh, spark some ideas. It does. One of the things that I've heard that's really cool
0: is and I probably should start doing this one because I haven't I haven't implemented it yet and I I probably should. It's called terminal days. Hmm. And one day a week or maybe one day a month you just act like it's your last day.
1: Whoa. Go live that day and wow. enjoy the things that you are. Wow. A terminal day. I've never heard that mm-hmm. before. That seems intense. <laughs> that it's seems
0: intense. So, you know, if it's if it's like, hey, I want to be surrounded by my wife and kids and we want to have lovely meals and this is what we want to do, want to take a month,
1: a, a day in a month and just go do that totally wow I think that's that's a that's a neat thing to think about there's something else that I wanted to ask you you said actually before we started recording that you're involved in some mastermind groups and um, kind of along this idea of you know trying to network and meet with some mentors um, I know mastermind groups get talked about online I personally have never been exposed or experienced one so for the listeners too and and myself selfishly what does that look like what's an optimal setting for a mastermind group and what should somebody expect ferment? And, and even more, have, have you enjoyed being involved in those activities?
0: I have. I very much in, enjoyed being in mastermind groups. I struggled in the beginning to find a good mastermind group. The biggest thing about a mastermind group is it's, and, and they're all different, right? So it's a group of people coming together. It's usually rather small, so maybe five to 10 people at most. And the purpose of the mastermind is to help each other grow to call each other out to push each other forward to hold each other accountable and so the the problem is is finding that group of people who are willing to show up week after week after week at a set time and be engaged they're not coming for themselves they're coming to help the group be better and so every week i'm i'm in two of them right now uh one is for the podcast And so we we come in and we talk about growing our podcasts and the things we need to do with the the podcast. And the other one is, uh, it's a men's group and it's about life. So we come together every week. And one week, someone's talking about struggles in their business. One week, someone's talking about struggles with their wife one week someone's talking about struggles with their kids one week someone's talking about you know their job and a promotion or or something that they need to do yeah. so it it encompasses every area of your life and you're constantly growing and so the one mastermind has uh, we go through a book every month or two they also bring in speakers so it's it's constantly learning improving It's a group of people going the same direction. You can build your own mind. If you've got a circle of people, great. Or you go into a paid mastermind. And some of the paid masterminds also offer you access to other people. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's kind of cool. You get access to people way above your pay grade.
1: Hmm, okay, that's cool. Well, something definitely to consider. I appreciate you sharing the two that you've been involved in. That that, that seems to me that that's such a great sense of community that you get mm-hmm. to share with other people that are in the midst of whatever you're going through, tackling real life problems and be able to kind of triangulate that. So that's a cool thing that maybe we might not get at a corporate you know, corporate job, even though there are people in the same job function or job title still outside of that, uh, you know, in your real life, there may be struggles that that might be different from your coworkers. So I think the mastermind might offer some, some cool things there. Uh, A couple other quick questions for you, Rocky, because, you know, I'm thinking about for, you've talked a little bit about how, you know, you've gone through this transformative process um, and you were able to achieve some of your financial goals and and then sort of thinking about, you know, Living life with a richer soul. But, you know, taking it back for people that are in that building phase, one of the things I can hear them thinking, you know, is yeah, well, I can focus on, you know, uh, living in a richer soul later, but I just need to get to my million dollars right now. And they're just in this sort of like, you know, rushed feeling. They want. They're grabbing for the dollars. They're grabbing for their promotion, and that's all that 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 can be focused on. We're just looking at those. You know, few inches right in front of us. What are the things that you feel like? You know, you would say to a person that's you know up against that life stage, and they're just trying to grab for as much as they can.
0: So I, I was kind of on a slow journey to becoming wealthy i know people who've done it extremely fast i'm talking 5 to 10 years going from nothing to multimillionaire the biggest thing i hear from those people is the regret that they did not enjoy the journey mm. they were so focused on the money they forgot to live life mm. it broke relationships it caused divorces it it just it messed up a lot of other parts of life so i think figure out what you want and enjoy the journey. Mm. And I think that's a big part of it. There are times where, yeah, we're going to have to work a little bit harder. I get it. But figure out how to bring some sort of harmony into your life mm. because otherwise it's never going to end. Yeah. Until you step off, you're just, <laughs> it's going it, to, it, you know, the top keeps going higher and, and yeah, it does. the desires keep growing. Yeah. They don't stop until you say, no more. I don't want this anymore. I want yeah. to enjoy my journey.
1: Yeah, there's something beautiful about the struggle, and I guess that is a real, that is a huge risk. You burn relationships, or you burn the time too fast, and you can't enjoy that while you're while, while you're scaling. So I appreciate the way you're saying that because that that might make someone feel like they can take a deep breath and they can take mm-hmm. their time. And you know, if you do it in uh, 15 years versus 10 years, but enjoyed it more, that might be more meaningful. So yeah, that's cool. Well, is there anything else before we wrap up, Rocky, that you feel like would be important to share with the listeners?
0: I think the number one thing is money is fuel. It gives you freedom. Figure out how to automate your savings so that you things just happen without you thinking. And then have fun with the rest. And then actually do the financial calculations to say, hey, here's my freedom number. Here's the amount of money I need to be able to walk away or to be able to do what I love. And just do the math. It's not complicated math. It's no. it's pretty simple math. But you have to do it. And I think too often we are lulled by a very low savings rate. You need to get your savings rate up as high as you can, 20, 30, 40 percent, um, Get it up there. The faster and the higher you get it, the faster you achieve financial freedom. And all financial freedom means is is you have time freedom. You get the ability to say no to anyone you want
1: to say no to. You get the ability to live life on your terms and do what you want. Mm, Super helpful, Rocky. I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate this. If people are interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way to find more about your podcast or any of your information?
0: So the podcast is pretty much available on most of the podcast players. The website also has links. It's Richer Soul, R I C H E R. So richer, having more money, and your soul, S O U L dot com. And you can also there's links on there if you want to email me, ask a question. Um, we've got a ton of podcast episodes where we we dig into these different things and all the different areas of life and how you can make small improvements in them.
1: That's cool. Well, Rocky Lalvani, I appreciate your time today. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me here, John. I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out the thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.